Good morning. Go ahead and open with me to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. We are going to be focusing specifically on verses 50 through 57 today, but we are going to kind of get a running start at verse 46. So I'm going to go ahead and begin reading the text. We're going to read Genesis 41, 46 through 57. And just kind of as in the Lord's providence, just in Tom's message this morning, I just couldn't help but think just the, um, the mesh in which we see the, the theology of finding joy in God, finding um, that joy in and through and believing God's promises, and just how that theology is really practically fleshed out in the life of Joseph. I mean, Joseph's life was one in which he trusted. He trusted the Word of God. He trusted the promises that God had made to him. He trusted the revelation that God had given to him in his dream. And through 13 years, he persevered in faith. And we even see in this passage the, the joy that he had, uh, the perseverance that he had, and, and whatnot. So anyway, that, uh, I want to go ahead and begin reading in verse 46. Go ahead and follow along with me um, here. God's word reads, Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction." When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Uh, the title of our message today is Faithful to the End. Faithful to the End. The life of Russia's first empress, Catherine I, is really one right out of the, uh, the storybooks of Walt Disney. Uh, when one looks at her life and looks on the, the past of her life, we would think almost we were in a fairy tale, as if uh, we were watching a Disney movie um, in the history of time. Catherine was born in 1684 to two 
Lithuanian peasants. And before the age of four, both of her parents had died from the plague. And upon their death, she was abandoned. She had no other family that could take her in, so she was abandoned to an orth- uh, orphanage. And, and as a youth, she ended up being rescued by a pastor in a nearby area. She was made a, a common housemaid in Latvia. And at the age of 18, while serving there as a housemaid, uh, big old Russia superpower came in, conquered her country, conquered her city, and then took Catherine back as a spoil of war to Moscow. And there in Moscow, she was forced into slavery within the home of a high-ranking government official. She was now without parents. She was without a home. She was without a land. She was really without anything. There she served in lowly exile. However, however, all that was about to dramatically change. Uh, right soon, excuse me, soon after her descent to Russia, she met, in God's providence, obviously, she met the Russian emperor himself, Peter the Great. And despite her status as a pauper and having no education, Catherine swept him off his feet with her beauty and with her charm. The pair were married and... Now, Catherine was elevated from the status of an exiled foreign slave to now the most powerful woman in all the country. She continued there at the hand of her husband, loving him until the day of his death, upon which, after he died, she became the first empress ever in the Russian Empire. From orphaned peasants to stately monarch. The rise of Empress Catherine I was truly remarkable. And yet there's a far greater testimony of God's sovereign hand in raising up kings and, and lowering and putting down kings that we saw, excuse me, that we've seen so far in Genesis chapter 41. All right here we've been studying this life of Joseph in which God has flexed his uh, providential arm as he has miraculously elevated Joseph from that of a lowly slave to that of royalty. We've seen that Joseph has gone from affliction to affluence. As Gary said last time, from the dungeon to the palace, or from the pit to the pinnacle. How did that come about? What's been the story that we've seen so far? Well, it really started back in Genesis chapter 37. As we've been studying and looking, we saw there a teenage boy, Joseph, had a dream. And he had a dream that one day his brothers would bow down and worship him. Not really what his brothers wanted to hear. Not very pleasing, right? And so this envy and spite and malice and hatred, we saw sin's devastating effects. As his brothers stripped Joseph of his royal robe, Uh, They threw him into a pit. They sold him down into slavery in Egypt. And then for what amounts to 13 years, Joseph was tested and tempered in his faith. Like the fires of a forge, God used the affliction brought upon Joseph to prepare him for future ministry. And then as we've looked at in 
Genesis chapter 41, at the beginning there, we see that after many long years of trial and tribulation, the time had arisen for Joseph's exaltation. When the fullness of time had come, God sent a troubling dream to a man named Pharaoh, which foretold of the nation's life, that it was at stake. And when none of his would-be officials, they could could not answer, they could not interpret for Pharaoh what was going on, God stirred within the heart of one absent-minded cupbearer. And we saw that the man who had previously forgotten Joseph, now, at the perfect moment, remembered him. And we saw last time that Joseph's head was lifted up out of his demise. And we walked through and we saw how Joseph was given this new change of clothes, that it was uh, we are seeing this reverse parallel of him going down into the pit. Now he is clothed and, and presented before Pharaoh. He's brought before the throne of one of the world's most powerful men. And at this point, we wonder and say, what is Joseph going to do? What is he going to say? Would he compromise at this point? Would he bend to uh, the influence of this pagan king? Had all these years of hopelessness caused some kind of cynicism within Joseph's heart? Had he lost faith in the promises of God? Well, last time we saw absolutely not, right? Joseph boldly, courageously stood before Pharaoh and he declared and he proclaimed the sovereign power of the omnipotent and omniscient God. He answers the king not only by giving him a clear interpretation, but he also provides for him a sensible uh, proposal. Here, Here, Pharaoh, here is how you should go about handling this catastrophe. Truly, Joseph was born and prepared for such a time as this. So we saw Pharaoh, he he was astounded, he was blown away by Joseph's wisdom. He said, who is in this that a divine spirit might be in this man? He saw the wisdom that was flowing through Joseph. And so he places Joseph at his right hand, makes him, as you would, a prime minister of Egypt. He He dresses him in fine linen. He gives to him a signet ring. He dons him with a golden necklace. He parades him around the land on uh, on Pharaoh's chariot. And so we saw that every knee was bowing. Every knee was confessing that Joseph had power and authority in the lands. Joseph, as we we said last time, is a, a true remarkable story of God's sovereign hand to lift this man up from rags and to bring him to riches. But now the dilemma is, how would Joseph remain? How would Joseph continue? How would he respond now that he has been exalted? He's the second most powerful man in Egypt, and by extension, all of the world. And as Gary pointed out last time for us that we were looking at is, is that this is now what we could legitimately say his toughest temptation yet. This is his toughest trial yet. Our scripture makes it clear that it's often not in the trials that we need to be wary of, but it's the times of ease, the times of prosperity in which our souls are prone to wander. When everything is going well, we're tempted to say like Deuteronomy 8, 17, my power And the strength of my hand made me this wealth. Like the foolish man of Luke chapter 12. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for you for many years to come. Take your ease, 
eat, drink, and be merry. It's here that Joseph faced his greatest danger. R. Kent Hughes puts it well. He says, quote, Joseph's life at the top would be no picnic. Every morning of his existence, he would rise to the pagan wake-up hymns to the Egyptians' idols. Life would be lived amidst a swirl of sensuality. Mrs. Potiphar's were everywhere. Open cookie, jars, uh, open cookie jars adorned every mansion of the Nile. Lying and backbiting filled the air of Joseph's aristocratic existence. And he was the one righteous man in Egypt and a Hebrew at that. Such righteousness was sure to offend the wicked, especially those who coveted his position. The temptation then is for Joseph to compromise. To just give in, to just forget his God, to forget his promises, forget his word, forget it all, and enjoy the treasures of Egypt. I mean, Joseph, do you really want to go back? Do you really want to compromise everything that you have to, to go back into that slime hole of a prison cell again? Do you want to just put all of this at risk to follow your God, Joseph? Egypt has lots of gods too. Why don't we just follow one of theirs? And so that's where we find ourselves as we pick up our narrative. Will Joseph compromise now that he's at the top? Well, we see in verses 46 through 57 that no, Joseph remains faithful to the end. And it's from Joseph's faithfulness, his model of faithfulness, that we learn this. Since God is always faithful... You too are to remain faithful to the end. As we look at these last verses of Genesis 41, we, you, I, we are called to remain faithful in our lives even to the end. Joseph models faithfulness and three different patterns, we see three patterns of faithfulness that show, that prove that Joseph, that he, he was faithful until the end. We see the first is this, Joseph was faithful in seven years of plenty. He was faithful in the seven years of plenty. Verse 46 says, now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. We Briefly looked at these verses last time, so I'm not going to go through them in detail. But we see that Joseph is now 30. The time of waiting has paid off. The time has come, the training, the preparation. It was time to put it all into practice. Would Joseph faithfully administer with justice or squander his unique opportunity? Well, we see that he was faithful, right? First, he prepares all of Egypt. Verse 46, he went out and he went through all of the land, the the. The famine was coming soon. There was time to be done. Much work needed to be accomplished. Joseph is faithful to prepare the people. He, he immediately begins overseeing the operations. 
And notice it not just in some of the land, but he goes through all the land of Egypt. Right? He shows great wisdom and care to provide not just for a portion, but to ensure the entire nation is cared for. And also we saw that he stores an abundance of grain in verses 47 through 49. As the Lord blessed the fields, we saw that in verse 47 it says they brought forth abundantly. Literally the word is handfuls, handful after handful. And so the land blessed, uh, excuse me, the Lord blessed the land abundantly. And so what does Joseph do? He gathers the food, he places the food in nearby cities, and then he stores the grain until it seems like it's sand upon the sea. It's immeasurable, it's uncountable. And so we see that Joseph, through this time, he was faithful in these bountiful years. But it's through these bountiful years that we come to a second pattern of faithfulness. And that's really what we want to focus on today is, is verses 50 through 57. As we see that it is within these bountiful years that God also blesses Joseph personally. That the Lord blesses Joseph with two sons. And so we see the second pattern of faithfulness here is that Joseph was faithful in the 13 years of trial. Joseph was faithful in the 13 years of trial. Read with me verse 50 through 52. It says, Now before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for, he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, if you're a parent in here, you know the, the pressure that sometimes it comes with being a, a parent, especially a new parent, as we have some new parents coming over here. And one of the most difficult decisions they have as new parents is naming their son or daughter. What should we name this kid, right? This kid's going to, they're going to bear this name for the rest of their lives. And we have one shot now to, to really either, you know, do well or, oh man, that was a failure. He's going to have this name for the rest of his life, right? See over there chuckling. Right? And, we, and, and you can think of some pretty awful names out there, right? You, you can think of some names in which you, you hear a parent name their son or their daughter that, and you just start thinking to yourself, why? Why would you name your son or your daughter, and I won't say the name here because you might have a name, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, so we can think of some pretty awful names out there, but at the same time, we can think of some pretty great names. You're like, oh, man, I wish I would have, that that's an awesome name. I really wish I would have had a name like that, or oh, I wish I would have thought that one for my, my son or daughter. Oh, that's just a beautiful name. You hear that? Oh, that's so beautiful and wonderful and all those things. But whether for good or for bad, each name has a story. Each parent has a reason, well, at least we would think that for the most of the part, they have a reason for naming their son or daughter that, even if it's pretty terrible, at least in our opinion, right? Parents have a reason behind why they name their children such. And the same is true here for Joseph. He names his sons and we see a great lesson from how he names his sons. Look at verse 50. It says, Now before the year of the famine came. So we're in the midst of this narrative in which the, the land is prospering. Um, seven years, everything's going great. And it's here 
during this time that we get a brief interlude about the birth of Joseph's children. In fact, we get a clue, we get a hint to this back in verse 49, where it says that the the grain was stored up in abundance like the sand of the sea. Uh, that's a, a hint back, that's an echo of what God had told Abram that his Abraham, that his descendants were to be like the stars in the sky. They would be like the sand upon the sea. So it's during this national blessing that an even, even greater reality is progressing within God's redemptive program. We see that God is still multiplying Abraham's descendants. God is still blessing his promised people. But at this point, the emphasis is not so much on the fact that that Joseph had sons, but as I mentioned, the important detail here is to note the naming of these children. Even more specifically, who the one is that names the children. Look at verse 51. Notice who doesn't do it. It's not the mom. It's not the Egyptian um, uh, wife, but rather it's Joseph. Joseph is the one who names the children. He takes it upon himself to give his sons their names. And and that's important because that's, that's unusual. We, we see fathers name their sons in the Old Testament, but the, the majority, the pattern is, is for the, the mother to name their sons. And so what, what that is telling us is that Joseph is taking it upon himself. He chooses to make a statement here through these names. And the first part of that statement, notice, is these names are not Egyptian names. These are Hebrew names. You say, oh, okay, Wes, well, what's the, what's the big deal about Joseph naming them Hebrew names? Right, because Egyptian names would have been the expectation for Joseph at this point. It would have been the, the norm in that culture in that day for him to give them Egyptian names. But instead, he gives them Hebrew names. And so then Joseph is going against the grain. He is swimming upstream and he is providing, by providing his children these strong Hebrew names, what Joseph is doing is he's making it crystal clear who he continues to trust in. He is saying, I trust in Yahweh and not Ra. He is declaring to all Egypt that he would raise his sons to know and follow the one true God and not the false gods the pantheon of those around him. And putting it all together then, the point is, the big point here, is that despite 13 years of trouble, of turmoil, Joseph is showing here that he has not yielded in his fidelity to God. Despite all that has happened to him, he continues to trust in the name of the living God, so much so that he will raise his sons to know and follow the God that he loves, trusts, and serves. By giving his children Hebrew names, Joseph blatantly asserts his trust in God and his promises. Concerning this, Ross writes, quote, Joseph used Hebrew names for his children that signifies his faith in the Lord was as strong as ever in spite of his suffering, and in spite of his success. So how do these names then symbolize Joseph's faithfulness? Well, we see first, after these 13 years of trial, 
he recognized the God who preserved him. He recognized the God who preserved him. Look at verse 51. We see that Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. The word Manasseh, it's a a word name that means causing or making one to forget. You might see that in the margin of your study study Bible. Why does he name him Manasseh? Well, he says, for, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Of course, when Joseph says forget here, he's not referring to a literal amnesia. It's not as if Joseph can no longer remember all those previous dark days down in the cellar, down in the the jail cell. Rather, he forgets in the sense that the goodness that God has now shown him has so far outshadowed and outstripped the evil that he went through in his past. It's as if all has been forgotten. It's done. It's no more. All that was in my past, Joseph now says, has all been forgotten. God has preserved me. God has brought me through the raging sea. Specifically here, we see that Joseph says that that God has caused him to forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Trouble refers broadly to his forced servitude down in Egypt. And when we pair that with all my household, what Joseph is referring to here is to all the pains that his family had brought upon him. All of the trouble that that his brothers had caused him from Genesis chapter 37, verse 18, all the way through Genesis chapter 41, verse 38. All the relational strain, all the emotional pain, the verbal abuse, the physical agony, the humiliation, the suffering, the injustice, all of that, Joseph says, the Lord's goodness has caused me to forget it all. God is the one working in my circumstances by exalting Joseph in the mire of Egypt, by bringing his word to pass in Joseph's life, God has so worked in Joseph's heart that he says the Lord has wiped it all away. God's goodness and faithfulness has has overshadowed Joseph's troubles. He he realizes now what what God has been doing all this time. He, He understood why now the benevolent God how he was preserving him, how he was keeping Joseph throughout the trouble. And now Joseph says, in my God, I've forgotten all the troubles my family has caused me. Christian, you can say the same thing too. I mean, do you need a, a truth to help you forget the troubles of this present life? It doesn't mean they're not there. It doesn't mean you didn't go through them. But how can you, what, what truth can you remember to help you as you go through your troubles? Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All right, the glory that is to come in the Lord Jesus Christ causes us to forget the the troubles in our present circumstances. And more than that, like Joseph, we can recognize God's preserving hand even in our lives now. Philippians 4, 11 through 13, those verses that we all know so well. 
There, Paul says that, that in whatever situation he's in, he, he's learned the secret of, of being filled and going hungry, both of having an abundance and suffering need. He says, I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. Right? We have Christ. We have the riches of Christ, the, the goodness of God, that even though our troubles may still be there, they may not even be going away anytime soon, we can say that God has caused me to forget all of these present troubles, to be content in my circumstances, because in Jesus Christ, I have the riches of his glorious strength. But not only does Joseph recognize the God who preserved him, he rejoiced. He rejoiced in the God who prospered him. He rejoiced in the God who prospered him. Verse 52, he says he named his second son Ephraim. Uh, the word there for, uh, the name there for his son means fruitful, or some say doubly fruitful. And again, Joseph gives him this name. He explains why. He says, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Once again, Joseph acknowledges the sovereign, the good, the benevolent, the faithful hand of God at work in his life. He says, God is the one. Who has made me fruitful. And notice, where has God made him fruitful? In the land of his affliction. Right? All of this mess, Joseph says, has turned out for my good. Right, it's ironic that the here is Joseph in this period of the life, and it's really the exact opposite of what we see going on around him. Right? Joseph is, has been through a, a famine-esque life of affliction. And now his life has been swallowed up by the abundance, by the, the plenty, by the fruitfulness of God. Whereas we see with Egypt, here they are in plenty and they're about to go through a time of famine. God says, here in my life, these years of leanness have been swallowed up. And God's goodness has been poured out and bestowed upon me. And so we see that Joseph rejoices, right? What a great, what a glorious God. He does more for me than I could ever think or imagine. And again, we read these verses and we say, should this not give us hope too? Right? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is our hope as well today. This is the same God who works in the afflictions of Joseph. is the same one who works to make us fruitful, to, to cause us to produce abundantly, to work all things out. For our good, Romans 8, 28, right? Even in the land of our affliction, we can call these truths to mind, right? If you're currently going through a, a land of affliction, as it were, our Lord is still working all things out for your good, just as he was working all things out to bear fruit in Joseph's life. And true, our fruitfulness, it, it might not be something tangible like Joseph's, Right, more than likely, y'all won't be made president anytime soon. I don't know, maybe, maybe somebody in here. We may not even see our fruit in this life. It might not be tangible. We might not even see it in this life. But we can trust that in the end, God is making his people abound in fruitfulness, even in the midst of their affliction. But to do that, we have a job to do. We have a job, just like Joseph, we too, must remain faithful to the end. That's the exact truth that Tom was alluding at to this morning. 
about believing and trusting in the promises of God. I like what Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verses 5 through 8, he says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its root by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Continue to trust. Continue to remain faithful. The Lord will use your your faithfulness, your, your continued hope in the word of God, believing upon his promises to produce the fruit of joy, peace, love, hope, so on and so forth. Right? Joseph had been faithful through 13 years of trouble. In every way, he was the tree planted by the stream that continued to hope in his God. That brings us then to Joseph's third pattern of faithfulness here. He was faithful and the seven years of famine. He was faithful in the seven years of famine. Famines were a common threat to the people of Egypt. They were no surprise. They dealt with them quite often. The Nile Valley region of lower Egypt was especially susceptible to, to famines because of the, the fact that very little rain falls in that area. In fact, uh, Egypt relies exclusively on the annual spring floods that come down from the heavy rainfalls in upper Egypt to flow down to the lower Egypt, causing then the Nile to to rise. And as the Nile rises, these elaborately crafted irrigation works flood the fields with water, providing the necessary nutrients for crops to grow in the hot summer sun. However, if rainfall falls short of, of only a couple of inches, it results in devastating drought and famine. Egyptian historical records capture such horrible times when the people of Egypt would even turn to cannibalism just to stay, stay alive. And that would have been the very same fate here had it not been for Joseph's faithful action, actions for the next seven years. We see in verse 53 through 54 that when the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, just as excuse me, came to the end, and the seven years of famine began, began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So we see this famine extended out through all of Egypt. All of the land is affected. And while it's interesting here to note that, uh, that it's not just the land of Egypt, but it's, it's all the earth. It's common to have famines in Egypt or to have, commons, uh, to have famines in, in Palestine, but it's not common to see famines happening both at the same time. Rarely do we see in historical accounts that famines simultaneous, simultaneously are going on in both territories. And so what we see then is this is a nightmare. This is a global crisis, a nightmare for the entire world. And it could have resulted in utter disaster for all the people of the Middle East had it not been for the cunning strategy and quick actions of a former Hebrew slave. See that Joseph's faithfulness turns a national crisis into national 
relief. We see his faithfulness is demonstrated in two measures of deliverance. We see first that he delivered the nations. He delivered the nations. Verse 55 says, So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. The words there for cried out. Uh, they refer to, to going to a superior asking for relief in times of adversity. And we see that in the book of Exodus as the people of Israel are, are languishing in the land or the harsh hand of Pharaoh and slavery. And what do they do? They cry out to God. They cry out to God to deliver them. We see that often today in countries as people mass and gather in streets trying to cry out to their oppressive governments. And so that's the picture that we see here is the people are going to Pharaoh. They're crying out, deliver us, Pharaoh. Save us, Pharaoh. Notice where Pharaoh points to them points them to. He, he didn't say, all right, I got you guys. Come on in. Here, here we go. I'll give you bread. He says, go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. Joseph's role has now come full scale. What was foreshadowed, what was foretold in his dreams in which he would be lifted up and exalted was starting to come true, not in fulfillment yet as his brothers are not bowing down to him, but they will, as we'll see. But what was foreshadowed in those dreams, what was foreshadowed in Potiphar's house, has now become a reality. Joseph has become a conduit of blessing to the nations. And Joseph has now become the deliverer of the Gentiles, if you would say. And so we see Joseph delivering the nations, giving them, opening the storehouses, and providing them with food. He sells to the Egyptians, and then we see he will sell to the nations. So he delivered the nations, but don't miss the point. There's a greater reality here. There's a, a, a greater focus, and that's the second measure of his deliverance. Really, what all this is about is that Joseph is delivering the royal line. In fact, at this point, in these last two verses, is really a transition to the rest of the book. Really, chapter 1, act 1, if you would, closes and now we see the next, in which Joseph will deal with his brothers. He will save Jacob. He will save his brothers. He will save and deliver the royal line. See in verse 56, so the famine was spread over all the face of the earth. Then Joseph opened all the storehouses. He sold to the Egyptians. The famine was severe in the land. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Two times we're reminded there in those two verses that the famine was severe. Okay, we got the point. We understand this, this, is, a, this is a bad thing. It's a bad, a bad famine. What's going on? Why do I need to know this? Well, because it's severe so that it spreads, notice, through all the earth. Think of that for a second. Why does he make a, 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 a focus here? Why does he say over and over again that this is to all the earth? This is to all the lands. It's because of who lives outside of Egypt. It's because of who lives in all the earth. It's Jacob. It's his brothers. More importantly, it's the royal line. It's Abraham's descendants. You see, this was the whole purpose of Joseph's descent down into Egypt. Here is the reason for his fall. Here is the reason for his preparation in chapters 37 through 41. Joseph suffered as he did so that God might raise him up to, del to deliver the royal line 
from harm. He was afflicted as he was so that he might deliver the Abrahamic family from danger. He was troubled as he was so that he might deliver God's promised word from failing. Right? God had a purpose for Joseph's suffering. It was through all of this God might bring Joseph here now to the point in which he would be the faithful deliverer of the promised family from death. That's staggering. That this is our sovereign God, his hand at work in Joseph's life so that God might deliver his promises, deliver his word, deliver the lineage of the Messiah. It's also encouraging, right? Because it reminds us, it reminds us that Joseph's suffering wasn't without purpose. And neither is ours. God is working our suffering out for our good and for his glory. Through all the ups and downs of Joseph's life, he has modeled faithfulness to the end. Right? Through 13 years of trial, through 7 years of plenty, through 7 years of famine, 27 years, he's faithful to the end. And now it's because of this faithfulness, God has crafted him to function as the deliverer. But there's another deliverer greater than Joseph. There is one who was faithful to the end. The Lord Jesus Christ came to dwell in a land of affliction for 33 years. And despite all of his trouble, he perfectly persevered. He carried out his divine mission, as we're learning about here. He came as a humble servant, born in a lowly manger. He continued that mission to a shameful cross. And he was faithful even to the end when which he was gloriously resurrected from the grave. And he will be faithful to the end when he comes back for his people. But what's different with this deliverer, unlike that of Joseph, is that Joseph saved a people physically with bread. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the true deliverer of the nations, offers not physical bread, but he offers the bread of his life, the bread of his body, to deliver us and save us from our spiritual darkness, to save us from Sin, slavery, Satan's subjection, right? Jesus Christ has laid down his life so that everyone who would come and eat of his flesh, that is to believe upon him, might too be delivered. And so if you come here today, not a follower of Jesus Christ, would you, like, like uh, the Egyptians going to Pharaoh, cry out? Would you, like Israel, going to to Uh, To God, cry out. Would you go right now to the Heavenly Father and cry out for deliverance that only Jesus Christ can provide? He has offered the bread of his body that if you would repent and believe, you too can find salvation in him. As we finish and close this beautiful last chapter, I just want to remind you of this, that God is sovereign. All right, as we look through chapters 37 through 41, what we see is that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all the circumstances and situations of Joseph's life. He's sovereign over our difficulties and our trials. God is sovereign, but also God is faithful. God is faithful to Joseph through this time. He was with Joseph. 
He was preparing Joseph, tempering Joseph like steel. He was working through Joseph to fulfill his dreams. He was working to exalt Joseph to his position of influence. God is faithful to Joseph. And we see that God is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his word. He brought about the dream revelations. You just think of the cupbearer, the baker, the pharaoh, to Joseph. All of that, God was faithful to bring it about. But even more importantly, God is faithful to his word in that he was bringing about his promises. He is bringing about his promise to Abraham as he protects the descendants of Abraham. He is, promised to, he is faithful to his promise with Eve as he is protecting this royal seed, preserving the lineage that would culminate in the Messiah. God is faithful, and he will be faithful to us as well. And we also see, though, that Joseph, through these chapters, is a model of faithfulness. He continued to live in faith despite suffering and success. He refused to bend the need to, to compromise to sin's demands, whether that was sexual immorality in Potiphar's house, whether that was despair and unbelief in the pits, or whether that was to the love of riches and the wealth of the palace. Joseph was faithful to the end. And we see that Joseph was faithful in that he boldly declared God's word to unbelievers. What then is, is our challenge? And as we look at this faithful God who is sovereign, as we observe, observe Joseph's model of faithfulness, at the end of the day, what we learn from this is that you and I are to remain faithful to the end. Since God is always faithful, brothers and sisters, may we too remain faithful in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. He is a great deliverer. He is the one who stretched out the heavens like a curtain as we sang and heard this morning, but who came so that with tiny hands he might reach out to the stars, he might reach out to his mother's face. We, we see the, the humility of his condescension in that way. And Lord, it's mind-blowing. But Lord, he didn't stop there. We, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ was faithful even to the end, that he lived a perfect life without sin, and he died on the cross for us, and he was raised again on the third day, that he might be our deliverer. And so, Lord, we, we rejoice in that, and we see how godly saints of old have persevered, how they have remained faithful in your promises. And, Lord, may we, too, be challenged to be faithful in our circumstances. Lord, I know that there are some here right now that are going through a land of affliction, who are in a, a famine-like uh, reality of physically, spiritually, God, I pray that they would continue to hold fast to the word of God, just as Joseph did. And that, Lord, in your great kindness, and your great trustworthiness of your word, that you would lift them up, that you would bear fruit in their lives, that, Lord, they too would see the goodness of God, and that they would persevere. God, would give us all the grace and strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.